obviously opinions and preferences vary and, and are different, uh, depending on the individual, depending on when you ask them, you know, my own opinion changes over time. I've admitted this, and it's one of the things, as weird as this may sound, I actually like about doing this series, the rumination stuff I do. Because over time, my own opinion is shown to have varied or changed based on, you know, going through with a fine-tooth comb and figuring out what I think about things. But I mention this because, in general, there are about five episodes I hear, which are always the best. You know, these are the best of TNG. Those episodes are, in no particular order, Yesterday's, Yesterday's Enterprise, Best of Both Worlds, Inner Light, Tapestry, and Darvok. Those are the ones that usually are brought up as the five favorites. I always find it interesting because sometimes, every now and again, I've seen this particular episode edge out Best of Both Worlds. Now, I know that sounds like a strange thing to comment on, but I bring that up because while opinions is very... Opinionses? Opinions and preferences vary... If you looked at popular media as far as viewing figures, as far as common rating, as far as understanding amongst non-Trek fans, Best of Both Worlds is on top. And yet sometimes this episode has actually beaten that one out in certain bowls. It's just interesting to me. Because this episode is another one of those, uh, let's call it Star Wars episodes. <sighs> I'm going to have to clarify that one, aren't I? Star Wars and New Hope should not have been successful. Now, what I mean by that is, they were, I've talked about this before, and you know, other people who are better than me have talked about this extensively, the making of and the behind the scenes of Star Wars, A New Hope, was insane. The amount of work and effort and conveniences and contrivances and problems and issues and just, oh god, ripping, ripping the hair out and scraping your teeth just trying to get things to happen. You know, just, oh, come on, we're not going to make it. And then they made it, and it was hugely popular. That's kind of yesterday's Enterprise, because this was a compilation work, basically pushed together by two completely separate scripts, and the interest and effort of several different people involved, which I have named down here, we'll talk about that in a second, as well as, like, five different teleplay writers and about seven total script writers, and a director who, frankly, is not exactly a long-standing Trek director, and doing Dennis McCarthy as the music. So it's basically none of the best of the people or the production or the making of of Star Trek somehow managed to put together an excellent episode. It's funny, too, because, let's be honest, the script does suffer from some, from some issues in this episode. It sort of presumes several things, and it has a lot of uh, what I'm starting to refer to more and more as Hollywood effect. In other words, just go with it. There's a lot of just go with it in this episode. And we can accept that, we can embrace that, but it, it does kind of be like, hmm, as you're going through it. Um, looking at my notes here. What the heck does that say? Uh, so originally, uh, let's talk about those original two episodes I mentioned. The first one was going to be functionally the same format, but in a completely different expression. The idea that there was going to be, uh, you know, this alternate timeline where the Romulans were crushing the universe, because uh, the Vulcans, it's actually not the Romulans, I shouldn't say that, it's actually the Vulcans. The Vulcan Star Empire is crushing the universe because Surak never actually started preaching the logic thing, which is something that's already established part of Star Trek lore. Surak, the one who basically taught the Vulcans their method of self-control and logic and all that fun stuff. And so Sarek, in the alternate timeline, goes back in time and sacrifices himself to become Surak, and thus the Vulcans exist, and our timeline goes forward. It was a neat idea, admittedly, and I kind of liked the idea. But then on the other hand, <clears throat> several people had uh, started talking with Denise Crosby. Now, I think I made my opinion on this fairly clear earlier, but to summarize, I don't blame Denise Crosby at all for deciding to go ahead and bow out of the show. It was, for all intents and purposes, probably the right decision at the time. It is only with the advantage of hindsight we can say that it was a huge mistake. And to be completely honest, it might not even be a huge mistake. I mean, let's look at Gates McFadden for an example of an actress who really didn't get to do a whole lot on the show. Or Marina Sirtis. <laughs> so who knows? But regardless... Crosby herself mentioned several times, especially right about the time season two was wrapping up, that she wished that she hadn't done it, that she wished she still had some say in Star Trek. Now, this is funny to me, because Star Trek has such a loose association with continuity that it's actually difficult to discuss Star Trek unless we establish some rules of what we acknowledge and what we don't. I myself am going to bring up some stuff later on, which technically is violated by stuff that happens later in Star Trek. 
Now, I personally mentally eject that stuff I'm going to mention. And we'll get there, we'll get there. Uh, because it's ridiculous and stupid. But that's what you have to do with Star Trek because of how loose it is on continuity. But, but at the time, the problem that was, hmm, the problem that was being brought up. Oh, that's weird. I just heard a really high-pitched whine, and I just got a national wireless emergency alert system thing on my phone. No joke! Like, you probably even saw me reach for my ear as I wasn't sure what I was hearing, or if it was just internal. Crosby, was the, the biggest complaint that was being labeled as to whether or not Crosby could come back or not, was that Yard died. Now, obviously, this kind of makes sense in its own sight. You can't just bring a character back. But at the same time, it's funny, given how much Star Trek is willing to throw continuity at the window, that they were so adherent to continuity and other things. In fact, in my personal opinion, this can be explained very simply by saying that character continuity has usually mattered in Star Trek, whereas setting continuity, technical continuity, uh, capabilities of ships, infrastructure... Uh, possibilities of trade or science, that kind of a stuff. You know, world-building stuff has never been, really been the strong suit of Star Trek. Deep Space Nine is really the first and arguably only time they've really pushed world-building in Star Trek. I take that back. Enterprise did that, too, especially in Season 4. But anyways, so they couldn't bring her back. And so Crosby was talking about this, the writers were talking about this, they had this other idea for another script. Why don't we go ahead and have her come back, and there's going to be this whole thing with the Guardian of Forever, and blah, blah, blah. And four people, or four? Uh, three people, sorry. Pillar, Michael Pillar, uh, Pillar, Stillwell, and Ganimo. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. All of them were pushing for this idea of bringing Yar back for this episode. Now, at the time... The idea, it appears that some people in the writing room disagreed on what should be done with this. Some people thought they should bring Yar back and keep her back, just bring Crosby back onto the show. Some people thought they should bring her back to give her a proper send-off. Uh, Ronald D. Moore, for example, was one of the people in the latter category. Uh, obviously, this ended up being a bit of both. We'll talk about that in a second. But either way, they kind of ended up shoving these these two scripts together and making it so that instead it's going to be Yar, and she's going to be the one who goes back to sacrifice herself to correct the timeline and blah, blah, blah. So that's cool. I like it. Um, there's also a lot of, like I mentioned earlier, many writers had their fingers in the pot in this one, so to speak. I think I actually just said that phrase wrong, but whatever. The point being, a lot of people were like, and so you can kind of see where the seams show in the episode. I've decided not to nitpick too hard, but I'm going to point out the things that are especially glaring to me. I also want to mention, uh, this is also a rushed episode. They had about three days to slam out a script for this. Now, I've talked about production cycles and how long things take. To be clear, I don't mean three days of total production time like happened back on Shades of Grey. I mean three days just for the script. They still had the usual seven days of, of production time on this episode. But three days for a script is still very short. And there's also some timing issues, but I'll discuss that in a minute. Well, I wrote down some dates I'll be tossing at you. But I also want to mention a couple other things here really quick here. They did a lot, and I want to give huge props to the art, sound, editing, and just the general props department. Because they did a lot of things, and I mean a lot of things, I'm not going to even name them for you, because there's too many of them to just go down the list, to, to change up the alternate timeline, to make it feel different. The most important ones to me I wanted to mention are the significant set changes. They actually redressed the bridge uh, several times. Uh, the completely different lighting style... The uh, completely different, um, the sound effects were different. And I know that sounds like a strange thing to point out, but there is more ambient sound. To explain what I mean by that, I want you to picture for a moment what it sounds like to be out in the woods. No, let's take that back. Out on a grassy plain, right? And you're on a hill. There's some grass. You feel down, you reach the grass. And you're on the hill and you can just hear 
a few things. You can hear the wind. You can hear it going through the, the grass. You might hear a couple of birds in the distance. So there is sound, but it's very quiet and very peaceful. Now, that is the ambient sound that they usually use, especially as of Season 3, when they started doing this overhaul, uh, for the Enterprise, just in general, whether you're walking through the hallway or whether you're up on the bridge or when you're a side thing or whatever. That's the usual ambient sound. In this episode, and I bet most of you didn't even notice it because good sound design is the kind of thing that you never notice, it was a lot busier. It sounded more like being in a street corner. You could hear people talking in the background. You could hear pagers constantly on the on the overcome. Uh, you could hear the beeps and chirps of the ship. The hum of the ship was actually tuned up. All sorts of little details like that to make it feel busier just to help add to the flavor and feeling that this is, in fact, a different, functionally, a different place in a different time. I like that. Uh, the other big thing they did was there was a lot of little character changes and a little dialogue changes, just just little stuff, like the military... Uh, or the military report, or the military log? Uh, shoot, I actually can't remember what they said, but, you know, instead of captain's log, stardate such and such, it's military log, supplemental, or whatever like that, and they have different battle alerts. Um, one of the things that, uh, for example, Ronald D. Moore, again, had, you can feel his fingerprints on a lot of these little details, because as much as Moore and I, much as I have a complicated uh, enjoyment of Moore's writing, Ronald D. Moore's writing, uh, one thing I will always give him praise for is details. The man knows how to make something feel like part of a fleshed-out work. He's better at the world-building kind of thing I was mentioning earlier. And so you can kind of feel... There's a sense of consistency to his style. And there's a lot of that in this episode. Probably my personal favorite example is the relationship, for lack of a better term, between Riker and Picard. But I digress. So right at the very beginning, we actually established something that will be a long-standing character trait for Worf. His love of prune juice. So you can thank this episode for that. One of the things I like about this, though, and again, this goes to the little subtleties. There's several parts of this episode which are appropriately subtle. That's good, because there's other parts of the episode that are upstandingly on the nose. I'm going to use a direct example here. The beginning of the episode, Guinan says, here... Try this one. And and I'm, I'm saying it wrong because I'm not a good actor, but the way she phrases it makes it clear this is not the first time she has tried to find a drink that Worf likes. This is probably closer to the 50th time she's tried to find a drink that Worf likes. And she pulls him, gives him this prune juice. And his reaction, especially his shock, kind of makes it clear. Like, again, a lot of subtle, quiet facial acting. He's just like, oh, okay, here's another one. Ooh, this one's actually good. And thus he likes prune juice. That's good writing, good acting, good directing. It's all implied, and none of it has... You don't have to turn to the camera and say, Worf, I have tried to get you to try 50 different drinks. Try this one now. Okay, but I have not liked any of... You, know, you don't have to do that. That's bad writing. On-the-nose writing is almost universally bad. Later on in the episode, there's a bit where, you know, they, they talk about... We have to send them back. Well, what what kind of chance would they have if they send them back? Oh, they'd be sent back at the second they left. So sending them back would be a death sentence. Dun, dun, dun! I mean, just... Anyways, like I said, a lot of different writers. So, Worf and Guinan then start talking about companionship. This is actually another subtle point. I really feel like Moore had his fingerprints in this section. Because we know Worf is... An old-school romanticist, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, a man after my own heart, if I might be so bold. The kind of guy who's like, this is my love, my my wife, my companion, whatever you want to call her. And Worf's interested in women, so in his case it's women. And this is someone who I am connected with. It's not, she's hot, the end. It's not, this is a fling. This is someone I'm committing to for a long period of time. This is something that will actually cause him problems in the future, no less. Uh, so... That's the kind of mentality Worf has. And yet the way Guinan talks about it is as if Worf is thinking about just dating and having some casual fun, if you will, without the crew. Now, based on what we know about Worf, he would never do that. Not just because of the reasons he brings up, because he doesn't believe in that. The reason this is all still coherent and congruent is because of the fact that this is Worf throwing up a defensive screen. You could tell by the way he says it, and again, excellent uh, credit and portrayal to Michael Dorn, which is good because he only gets two scenes in this whole episode. Three, excuse me. Arguably two scenes in the whole episode. But you could just tell how he's putting up a defensive screen and how he's got this sort of almost faux-pricked pride thing going on that just kind of makes it clear that he, he's just responding in an amusing fashion 
to someone who is his friend, while at the same time deflecting the truth of the matter because he doesn't want to talk about something that's serious with her. It all works very well, and I don't want anything else to add to it. So then Guinan senses the time changes. This is probably one of the least explained aspects of the episode. Where's the portal come from? I want to talk about the rift, actually, really quick. The episode flat out says that the rift was probably made by the collusion of fire, as in the firepower of the Romulan warbirds on the Ambassador-class Enterprise-C. Um, not called Bull on that one. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I have never believed that even for a second. In fact, when I was a kid watching this episode for the first time, the Enterprise-C, in the battle in which it was destroyed, coming out of a portal that shouldn't have been there to begin with, we'll talk about the time travel in a minute, don't worry, interacting with the Enterprise-D, that's a little bit too many coincidences for me to swallow, again, even when I was a kid. So I, of course, logically assumed the most obvious possible answer. It was Q. Right? I mean, doesn't that just make sense? The thing is, it does make sense, but it's also kind of a cheap answer, isn't it? I mean, the only thing that this could prove is the willingness of self-sacrifice amongst humanity. And while that might be part of Q's, let's call it, case, I, for the longest time, I didn't really put any real weight into that theory. Until today. I'll talk more about the Q thing. I will. But just keep that in the back of your mind. As is, the rift is just way too convenient. And if we're being honest, from an out-of-character perspective, there's no explanation for the rift. They just wanted it there, so it's there. Bam. Done. The writers were effectively the cue in this situation. Moving on. So, they decided to go ahead and do a, uh, a thing where there's this visual distortion effect between the, the previously existing timeline and the new timeline. Again, we'll talk about the time stuff in a minute. Um, now, that distortion was not actually part of the script or anything. Now, funnily enough, having rewatched it, I kind of think I would have liked it better without the distortion, but I see why they did it. Because there were some concerns that, you know, people would be confused about the fact that the, we, because the way the cuts work, if you remember, is Picard says, what's that ship? And then we see an external shot of the Enterprise C, and then it cuts to alternate Picard saying, what is that ship? And in, in the new dark military timeline. And that's it. That's the, that's the presentation there. Now, without the visual effect, <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to back down on this one. I think it would have worked better without the visual effect. I think it's that's dumbing down the scene because it works great with just the instantaneous cut. In fact, we see the instantaneous cut at the end of the episode when they shifted back. Although apparently that was a mistake. They were supposed to put in the the distortion for when they go back to the original timeline, and they didn't. But whatever. Funnily enough, it actually isn't the original timeline, is it? But time travel. I'll get there. I'll get there. Anyways, I just jotted down. Within seconds, we see Tasha Yar at Tactical. Nice directing on the camera shot, by the way. Picard's tone is noticeably different. He kind of goes from talking kind of like this to talking like this in much more clipped tones with a lower beat to his voice. I'm saying that wrong. Much more clipped beat with a lower tone to his voice. There we go. Uh, the lighting is different. Uh, the suits are different. Guinan is different. The belts is di are different. The, the bridge is different. There's way more people. The sounds, I already mentioned that, but it's worth repointing it out. There's a lot of audio and visual information just being dumped on the audience very quickly to all get across the point very succinctly. This is a different timeline. It's actually then a shame that the script then goes out of its way to flat out say, you know, this is another timeline and here's the rules of the other timeline multiple times throughout the episode, but whatever. Regardless, um, it is good. From a purely visual audio perspective, the shift is an excellent way of conveying the information. Uh, I just, this is where I wrote my notes about uh, little details and whatnot. There's also a note here I have about Picard. Patrick Stewart is an amazing actor. I've been a big fan of his for many years, although I think TNG was, in fact... No, no, I think Dune was actually my first exposure to Patrick Stewart, although I didn't really recognize him at the time, but I'm pretty sure I saw Dune before I saw TNG. I could be wrong about that. I'd have to look up timelines, but either way, TNG was the first time I became a fan of Patrick Stewart, and part of the reason is because he's a damn good actor. The man knows how to present himself with a lot of different tones. If you've ever looked on YouTube, he has a series of videos about him just showing how to do different types of emotion with just his face and, and little audio cues. It's a nice stuff. Anyways, I bring this up 
Because what we see in this timeline, in, in military timeline, is that he is still Picard at his nature, but the nurture of his environment has completely changed. This still feels like it's a little bit down. Is it still a little bit down? Oh, it is. Hang on, hang on. Sorry, I've been adjusting my webcam all over the place for streaming purposes. That's a little bit too low now. Don't mind me. Production values. I like production values, don't you? That's a little bit better. I have a little preview window there that I can make sure that everything's working correctly. What I mean by that is he comes across as someone who is an idealist who has been ground down by a horrible truth. That's the impression I get from his presentation. He acts completely blasé when told about casualty reports and about military matters and about the loss of the Federation and the fact that the Federation may have to sur surrender soon. And then he also cares great deal about his own people, even people who aren't his people at all. You can feel the idealist just screaming underneath this layer of caked cynicism that has built up and coated itself around him. And it's a great presentation, and it comes out... I'm not going to give you every instance of it, but if you pay attention to the whole episode, he just gets across this mentality the whole time. It's wonderful. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about the time travel. Let's just get that out of the way. So I keep putting it off. There are three general types of time travel when it comes to fiction. Type 1 is time is a linear line, which means time travel alters nothing, only completes something. Type 2 is malleable timeline, which means every time you time travel, you change time, but time is a singular thing. And then there's 3, which is multiple timelines, which which is the, the easiest thing to write because consequences don't matter in a multiple timeline situation. All you have to do is just, oh, it's a new timeline, it's a new timeline, it's a new timeline. But anyways, those are the three types of time travel. Now, Star Trek has actually bounced back and forth between all three types of time travel throughout its run, basically depending on which specific writer has decided to write this this week. That's just the reality of it. Now, that irritates me, and I already mentioned the continuity thing earlier, but it does make a degree of sense, because one of the things that's been posited every now and again is that different types of time travel lead to different results of time travel. In other words, um, this is going to be a horrible example, but it's a good one at the same time. If you've ever played a game called Chrono Trigger, it's an RPG on the SNES, for most of the beginning part of the game, the time travel that's happening is effectively type 1 time travel. No actual alterations to time are happening. Everything is happening as it already had and already will. But then you, you gain access to a literal time-traveling ship. And that ship allows you to start changing things and affecting things. And at that point, it effectively becomes type 2 time travel, where it becomes malleable and you can actually alter history. There's also some brilliance of the game design of that and the narrative design, and I don't want to bore you with all that. I've studied Chrono Trigger like 18 times myself. The point being, that's, another exa that's an example of how you can have multiple types of time travel within a singular setting. Thing is, uh, I don't think that much effort was ever put into Star Trek's uh, approaches to time travel. So in general, Star Trek tends to just lean on the type 3 type of time travel. Every time you alter time, a new timeline is branched out. In other words, if you ensure that Bob over there goes back in time to change history, you are unaffected by that change because your timeline remains as it is. So to use, if, for example, in this episode, this is a Type 3 situation, what that means is the Enterprise D crew all die and the Federation is crushed and defeated by the Klingons. The end. Now, the third timeline is crafted as a consequence of that, but, and that's the one that we see for the rest of the show. But the second timeline, which is the military timeline, they're doomed. So all of this effort and work was effectively for nothing. Now, it could also be inferred, and to be clear, based on some of the things I've read from the writers, and there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. In fact, there's actually a making-of just for this episode. By all the behind-the-scenes stuff I've seen, it seems clear that the writer's intent was that this is type 2 time travel. In other words... They didn't actually die per se, and the, the timeline, because they ceased to exist. Instead, along the singular timeline, when the Enterprise C goes back, they, excuse me, they, they succeeded at their mission at Naranda 3, the Klingons made peace, and time was changed so that all of these events never happened. Make sense? A more classical paradox in that sense. Now, 
That's my personal headcanon. It is interpretable in both directions. I'm going to mention that. But it does change some of the significance and impact because either they saved everyone or they didn't save anyone. It is, however, worth noting that the Type 3 system actually kind of makes a little bit more sense in exactly one way, and that's Guinan. One of the theories I've heard, posited by fans many years ago, was the idea that Guinan and her species have the innate ability to just kind of feel through conduits of time. Uh, probably space, too, but, but it usually comes up with time. In other words, because of the fact that she could reach into, that, that that portal existed, the idea is that if we're doing multiple timelines, the portal is effectively connecting multiple timelines. In other words, she can literally sense the other timeline through the portal. This, posit, this was posited before the movie Generations came out, by the way, and Generations was apparently designed to give a reason for why Guinan has super spaceo powers. Um, make of that what you will. I already made the comment about canon and continuity earlier, so make of that what you will. Whatever. Regardless, the idea here is that this is... I'm going to go ahead and go ahead forward with the theory that this is, in fact, Type 2 time travel. Enterprise C has a... Dis, dis, and they jump forward here. All this stuff is crap. So then they are sent back, and then all this stuff is restored. Now, I know that doesn't sound linear, but let me try to explain it this way. If we were to discuss this linearly, what happens is the Enterprise C flees from a battle at Narenda 3. No, now, no word of this is probably ever found, and I'll talk about the Romulans in just a second. But this leads to the Klingon Empire's uh, peace talks with the Federation breaking down, and some of the more militant members of the great houses decide to push for war. War begins, war happens, war crush, crush, crush. Klingons start crushing the Federation. Oh yeah, by the way, Huthor, if you're watching this, this is a great example of what I mean by the Federation would have been screwed without Wolf 359, because apparently they were screwed by the Klingons, but I'm getting off topic. Point being that in this case, the war happens, and then the Enterprise-C comes out. Stuff happens. They send the Enterprise-C back, and then the timeline we're familiar with this whole time happens. Now, now this is important to note because there's actually two interpretations of Type 2 time travel in this situation that are valid. One of them is that we are basically in a third timeline, and the other is that we are back in the first timeline. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. The idea here is that either, uh, I wish I had I'd gotten something for this, but I don't have anything I can actually use to make do this. I need, I need like a string to do this. Uh, we'll use my headphones here. I don't know if you can actually see these suckers. Uh, they're kind of visible there. Okay, so here's the timeline, right? So the in, if this is a third timeline prob probability, which is I do not agree with personally, but just want to get that out there, then what happens is... The first timeline is like this, completely as is, right? And then the alteration as a consequence of yesterday's ha Enterprise happens, and then when things are changed, this is now this timeline. In other words, we're it's still a singular timeline, but it's been altered twice. Make sense? Now, the way I think of this is, and I'm going to struggle to explain this, but it makes sense in my head, I swear to God, is that this is the same timeline that always was. Or, in other words... This is actually a form of type 1 time travel. Because the idea is that if you were to remove yourself from time and be able to act as a third-person perspective, kind of like having the viewers of a TV show, what you would see is the events as uh, that, that are as presented would have gone in the way that I just mentioned them earlier when I was discussing linearity. In other words, Enterprise C, military timeline Enterprise C, goes back, restores, and then current timeline. In other words, there is no third timeline. There's only the first and the second. Now, that's important, because what that means, if that's true, is that Tashiyar was always back there at Narenda 3. You with me? That in the timeline we've been following since, uh, well, since Encounter at Farpoint, Tashiyar always went back, and is actually still alive. She's, there's a second Tashiyar running around. Uh, as of the battle at Narenda 3 years ago, and that Sela was always around and part of the Romulan Star Empire. Make sense? It's okay if it doesn't. I'm trying my best, I swear. Now, that's my personal headcanon, but again, it is worth noting this is interpretive. That's why I mentioned all three uh, variants of the time thing. Whew. 
Okay, now that we got that out of the way, let's talk about the Romulans. One of the things we learned back in the neutral zone was the idea that the Romulans were just kind of off in the distance, didn't really have any contact, didn't have any real interaction with us. Now, I talked about the more political and political side of that kind of discussion and argument and, and the whys and the wherefores uh, back when I was discussing that back in Season 1. I think I've brought it up a couple times since then. But it's relevant here because for, for two reasons. First of all, if the Romulans were approaching the situation with a we're not here, leave us alone mentality, these type of occasional raids would make perfect sense. They warp in with overwhelming force. Four warbirds. Now, granted, this is a while ago, so these probably aren't the Daredexes, but still, four full, you know, DC-10s or whatever. Um, four full warbirds, and they block communications, and they wipe out the outpost. You know, people destroy whatever they can, get whatever information they can out of the thing, and that's how they can maintain not only... So it, it accomplishes two things for the Romulans. Uh, three, actually. First of all, it keeps their enemies on their toes, because the Romulans view everyone as their enemies. Second of all, it also makes sure that they can retain information. It's a way of gathering information from the nearby powers. This this outpost was a Klingon outpost, and now they have Klingon information as a consequence. And the first thing that it manages is the idea that it helps to keep the other powers' expansion in check, whether it comes to outposts, colonies, um literal sensor probes, you know, all that kind of stuff. I like to think that for the last bagrillion years, 50 years or so, however long it's been, the Romulan Star Empire has actively had cloaked ships out there regularly policing the other major powers, the Federation, the Klingons, and the Cardassians being the three biggies, and ensuring that none of them really get too far out of bounds or get too close to Romulan interests. So this whole thing makes sense from that perspective. The other way this makes sense to me is if Sela was always involved, because as strange as this may sound, Sela kind of makes sense for me that if by the point at which neutral zone happened, Sela would be someone who at that age would probably have already reached a position of significant power within the Romulan power structure. I know that's we're getting into stuff we haven't really covered yet, but my point in saying this is that given the rank and power she has in upcoming episodes, it would make sense that a mere four years earlier, she would already still be in a rank of power and position. Probably lower, but still high. And the kind of influence she would have would kind of lead to the Romulans being more open and more interactive and more aggressive. Because that's kind of her style. As a quick side note, uh, if absolutely nothing else, I'm glad that this episode happened to give us past ER or whatever, military ER, as well as Sela. Because I happen to really like Star Trek Online. Anywho, <clears throat> so uh, let's talk about, there's a scene with Patrick Stewart and Whoopi Goldberg, and the two are just talking about this. Now what I love about this is, is many things, actually. Wonderful grammar. But what I love most about it is the fact that it's not a Cassandra truth. I hate Cassandra truths. It's one of the, my biggest pet peeves when it comes to fiction. In the off chance you don't know what I'm talking about, a Cassandra truth is when someone says, this is the truth. It's either a prophecy or information about the, the past, or the present, or whatever. And everyone else says, nah, that can't possibly be true. And they don't believe them. That irritates the ever-living crap out of me. Because usually fiction does that to basically allow for you know the, the drama to go overboard or for things to just go bad without any real reason. By contrast, here, Guinan and Picard have such a close connection that Picard believes her instantly and without hesitation. Now, that's the interesting part. He still has reservations about what she says to do about it, but at no point does Picard ever accuse Guinan of lying. In fact, no one does. And I do like that. I like how they treat this as gospel. They're not sure what to make of this information. They're, that's the dilemma now. It's not whether this prophet is telling the truth, it's what do we do with the truth? And I prefer that particular approach to things. But um, there's a lot of weight and gravity. I mean, they actually have two scenes together. Both of them, it's just the two acting off of each other. Early on is her just dumping, this shouldn't be. But later on, he's like, what do you want me to do about this? She's like, they need to go back. In fact, the second conversation begins with the words, I need more. That's what Patrick Stewart says. That's what Picard says. I need more to go on, to do. You have given me so little information, and I, as a military commander, need more information to decide a tactical path going forward. 
And Guinan gives him them, and he just explodes. He loses it. Not good enough, damn it. Not good enough. And I love that. It shows how wound up he is. It's a part of that idealism just peeking out underneath those shells of muck. Because the idea of sending men and women to their death is abhorrent to him. The idea of being, well, go fight a meaningless battle, just bothers him. And when he gives this thing, this is wrong, this is pointless, and then the last word he says is so powerful. It is futile. Because that's the cynicism seeking back in, seeping back in. In other words, to him, all he sees is the possibility of sending some good men and women to their deaths for nothing. And yet it is further thought and reflection that leads to the reality that their deaths might actually have meaning. And that leads to the command decision, the, 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 the paradox of command. I've, I've called it several things over my years. You care about people, and you have to not care about people as a commander. And that's where Picard is in this situation. Note, by the way, that there's, there's again, a lot of little subtle touches. When he's giving his briefing to his staff, first of all, the entire tone of the briefing is completely different. He's still Picard. Everyone's still welcome to state their opinions. Everyone's still welcome to participate. But as he himself says, this is a briefing, not a discussion. The other nice little touch, though, is the camera pans by his back very briefly before getting the rest of it. And you can see he's just... He's barely containing himself. He's so distraught over this whole situation. It's a wonderful little bit, and I love it. Anywho. Um, I already mentioned the Romulans. Look at my notes here. So, uh, let's talk about time uh, time dates. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll call it... We'll talk about dates really quick. No, not romantic dates. No, no not... <laughs> Okay, let's talk about uh, when this episode was being made, because it's relevant. See, there is a uh, theory that has circled Star Trek fandom for, God, like, almost 30 years now. It's been a while. It's like 25 years, something like that. And that theory is that this episode led to the kernel of ideas, which eventually became Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Now... That's relevant because this episode arguably contradicts Star Trek VI. The idea that uh, Castillo, uh, Castillo flat out says, you know, we're in the middle of negotiating peace with the Klingons. No, well, we're actually at war. Now, they never state it outright, but the implication is very clear. The idea was that, remember, Star Trek VI didn't exist at this point in, in real life history. So the idea is, this is the episode explaining where that came from, where the peace between the Klingons and the Federation came from. They were negotiating peace about 22 years ago. The Enterprise C was was lost trying to defend a Klingon outpost. That affected the Klingons. The Klingons then decided to embrace the Federation, and that led to the current policy of alliance and friendship. And that's really, obviously, clearly what the episode posited. Here's the catch. Uh, thanks to Star Trek VI, we know that actually about 50 years before that, the Klingons and the Federation signed peace treaty. Now, this can be smoothed out. There is a way to smooth out this timeline. And I'll give my own personal theory on it. As ever, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts. I feel like I say that a lot on the show. But I only bring that up because I decided to look up some dates about when this episode was being made, as in more specifically written, versus when uh, Star Trek VI was being written. Turns out it's almost a year difference. They started working on the final draft, excuse me, they concluded work on the final draft of the script of Star Trek VI in December 28, 1990. Whereas they had uh, started work on the script of this episode, script at the time, around April 15, 1989, and then concluded and started getting for the first actual teleplay drafts right about December 4th, 1989, so almost straight up a full year prior to them even really getting into the scripting of Star Trek VI. However, the people who are working on Star Trek in general were still involved in that, so you can kind of see where this, this idea kind of got posited that you know some of the kernels of this led to Star Trek VI, and then they just had a bit of a time variance. But I like to think that this doesn't contradict history. Here's my reasoning. Back in Star Trek VI, you know, peace... We signed this peace accord. Now, that basically means the end of the war. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, let me rewind a second here. The Klingons and the Federation did go to war. Uh, that's back in Discovery's kind of covering that now. But we knew about that even in the original series. And then they kind of cooled off for a while. 
and then war flared back up right around the Iconian? No, wrong, wrong species. Oh god, I can't think of their names. Uh, the energy beings. I can't think of their names. Oh my god. They showed up and they made the energy being treaty, which basically forced peace onto the Klingons and the Federation, which neither was particularly happy about. What then happened was that peace was fairly solid, but then descended almost immediately into what is effectively a Cold War scenario. Actual fighting and conflict between the two sides was semi-common, but neither side at a grand political scale was allowed to let it escalate into actual war. Okay? So that Cold War existed in a state all the way up to Star Trek VI, at which point the two sides signed peace with each other and started organizing and coordinating with each other. The wall came down in space. And at that point in time, they were no longer in a Cold War or a War War. They were just two powers existing, you know, alongside each other. That's my point, is that they didn't actually decide to ally or truly sign significant uh, negotiation, trade, Co co cooperation or coordination between each other at the end of Star Trek VI, it was the first step that would then lead to that. Thus, over the years, the 50 years between them and the incident in Arenda Three, the Klingons and the Federation kind of got closer and closer, and honestly, thanks to uh, Pendulum Effect, I have no doubt that there were members, probably both of the Federation and the Klingons, and definitely the Romulans, who were interested in trying to push this this burgeoning friendship away so that it wouldn't become a full-blown alliance. This, of course, leads to the incident at Narendra Three, where they were in the middle of negotiating an actual formal alliance between the Federation and Klingons, basically becoming two unified powers, and then it just wasn't there. They needed something to, to make it that final push, and they didn't get it. And the more militant and extremist members of the Klingon Empire managed to make their voices heard, and that leads to all-out war. Make sense? But of course, in the original-slash-restored timeline, which is also the original timeline, depending on how you define it, <laughs> either the first or the third timeline, if one timeline, oh my gosh, we have a situation where a Federation cruiser, remember, at this point in time, the Ambassador class was basically the biggest ship in the fleet. And since it was called Enterprise, we could probably infer that it was the flagship. Well, we don't know that for certain. But either way, it's not just some random, you know, uh, Miranda class that they threw, or an Oberth that they happen to throw out. No, this is a big ship with big significance, with a big crew, with a big name, that set, laid down their lives just to defend one random Klingon outpost. And as I've talked many times before, Klingons have a big thing on fake honor. Now, what happened there is, is basically real honor, but real honor can also construe directly into fake honor. In other words, they saw that as a big thing, a big gesture. And as a consequence of it, those militant members of the Klingon Empire, those, those more extremists, didn't have the power or voice behind them that they needed, and thus an alliance happened. Make sense? <clears throat> I haven't talked a lot about Castile or Garrett. I want to talk about both of them really quick. Funny thing about Garrett, uh, the actress does a good job. She's, I've actually mentioned her because we've already covered an episode uh, where she showed up. And she'll show up again in the future as another guest star. But she, she was the Cardassian in the episode um, Tribunal over in Deep Space Nine. And she'll be showing up again as a Klingon uh, in a in a episode where the uh, metaphasic shields get introduced. I can never think of the name of the episode, but she's in that one. But anyway, she's a good actress. Um, but what I find interesting about this is that if you close your eyes and listen to the dialogue, and this is actually pointed out to, to me by a friend of mine about like 10 years ago at this point, uh, if you listen to it, it sounds like Picard's dialogue. Now, I was never able to confirm this. I have every behind-the-scenes thing that I have access to outside of being able to literally pick the minds of the writers themselves about something they wrote 25 years ago. I don't actually know how better to learn this, so I got nothing. But I always had the theory that when the writers were writing this, they literally just wrote her as Picard. They, did, they couldn't decide on a tone for her or a personality for her, so they just copied Picard's and made her a woman, so that way it wouldn't look like Picard talking to himself. Um, she does a good job of it, but unfortunately, as a consequence of that, I just don't have a lot to say about it. It's almost a shame she had to die, but then again, time, blah, 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 blah. Let's talk about Castile, though. Here's the thing. Originally, there was supposed to be more character stuff between Data and Yar. 
which actually would have been nice. There's a very brief scene between the two on the turbo lift, which is actually really awesome, but I would have liked to see more of that interaction rather than her apparently deciding to fall in love with Castile. Now, I know, I know, you guys know I'm all anti-romance and all that, but I bring this up because it feels like the romantic interest between Yara and Castile just comes out of nowhere and seems to have no actual basis other than we happen to find each other moderately interesting and also the situation is desperate. Now, yes, that is a valid basis for the beginning of a relationship, which may or may not ever have had a chance to actually blossom. At the very least, it is definitely a valid basis for a fling. But that just answers my point of why I don't give a crap about it, because at absolute best, it's the beginning of something that might be relevant. Now, I don't like to criticize unless I can give alternate ideas or try to give some kind of constructive feedback. So I want to toss at you guys an idea I had when I was watching this episode, because it just kind of clicked with me. We see in Picard someone who is ground down. And we see this in all of them. Riker himself constantly looks like someone who's basically been forced into a position of submissiveness. I, I don't know how better to put that. It feels like Riker is someone who just ha doesn't have his confidence, in other words. Someone who feels ex comfortable and accepting of just being this, you know, this little person who's constantly being stepped on. Um, unfortunately, I can't speak to most of the rest of them because we don't get a lot of characterization for the other characters. Like, we barely see LaForge. Worf isn't there at all. Beverly is barely there. All of them do speak in more subdued tones, though. Now, this is all relevant because this is all part of the tone. As Yar herself says, it's been a long war. I like the idea that Yar was someone who was also ground down, who was also bitter and depressed and cynical and all those other fun things, as a consequence of being at war for basically her entire life. And I like the idea of her interacting with Castile, someone from another era of Star Trek, a more positive era. This, then, kind of adds credence and weight to why the two would gravitate towards each other, or, to be slightly more specific, why she would gravitate towards him. I have no idea what he would gravitate towards her, but whatever. It would at least make a very concrete reason for why she became interested in this guy. And I would have liked to see more of that, that rather than just shop-talking most of the time, he comes across as an idealist, as an optimist. Someone who, yeah, he's willing to wait out, lay down his life if he has to, but went into space knowing that was true and embracing it because there's just so many wonderful things out there to see. Remember... 22 years ago was in the era where the Federation was approaching what would become what I personally refer to as the golden era of the Federation. You know, the, 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 win, the, the winds of change, everything's awesome era. In fact, he's basically on the burgeoning cusp of that with this relationship or the, the uh, negotiation with the Klingons. The idea then being that he could have just rubbed off on her and that that would have been infectious to her and allowed her to see that there might be some for lack of a less horrible way to put this, some purpose in living rather than just surviving. And I think that would have added some significant weight to the interaction between the two, certainly would have added credence to the romantic relationship, and would have added even more reasoning behind why she decided to go with the sea. Not that she needed more reasoning, per se, but I think it would have added more weight if she went back because, God damn it, I want a life for other people that's worth living. Anywho, <clears throat> so, I do like the scene where Picard admits to Garrett the truth of the war news. I do like that. Um, so then Act 3 happens, the Klingons attack, no! Garrett dies, no! Um, there's a lot of Moore's fingertips over this one as well. He likes to do things where he sets up things quietly in the background, and then he just moves on and moves on, and then a payoff comes back out of nowhere. It's a fairly typical writing uh, technique, but it works very well because the whole point is you're being hit with like five or six pieces of information, and two of them end up being relevant later, right? Uh, they did this back in uh, The Defector as well. This is an excellent thing, an example of that. So they actually established that there was a Klingon battlecruiser in the area, the Kavort, and that that bird was going to be here soon, and blah, blah, blah. So that was a nice little payoff. Yar, Yar, goes, to, uh, Yar goes to Guinan. She learns about an empty death. Now imagine Yar's reaction to that. I've already given my own theory on, you know, a better life and all that. But obviously all of that's not canon. That's just my own personal way of how I would do it. But within existing canon, 
Can you tell me, honestly, that Tasha Yar, as she was presented, which, granted, she didn't get the most characterization, but as she was presented, do you think she would be okay with basically dying just for frickin' cuz? And, of course, I can't help but point out the out-of-character significance, because Denise Crosby's character died for no real reason, because she just bowed out of the show. She was basically killed off as an afterthought. Now, I know we've argued this many times. I shouldn't say argued, that's a wrong term, but we've discussed this many times. A lot of people disagree with me on that, and I disagree with a lot of different people about that. And there's a whole lot of people have been discussing uh, Skin of Evil for literally decades at this point in time. Regardless of that, I do think we can say that both Denise Crosby and Tasha Yar were not happy with the circumstances of their death for their differing reasons, but really for the same reason, because it was an empty, meaningless death. Having this pop opportunity to have a death of significance would be very popular, or wrong word, uh, very uh, appealing to Tashiar. I imagine she would take this at a heartbeat, without even trying, without even thinking about it. In fact, I think that's actually very uh, logical with the way the episode presents it, because she makes her decision very, very quickly. But of course she does. Why would she need to think about this? The only thing she needs to do is convince Picard. So... I just want to mention something really quick. Picard and Yar have a scene together. Denise Crosby and Patrick Stewart. And I want you to look at this scene sometime. I, I don't know if you have the availability. I actually did this for the sake of this rumination, just to make my own point. And it was made in spades. All the way back in Hide and Q, there was a one-to-one -one between Picard and Yar. Now, as I mentioned back in that episode, it was actually supposed to be Troy and Picard, but whatever. The point being, that scene was not good, in my opinion. Now, granted, I had significant problems with Hide and Q in other ways, but ignoring that for a moment, just look at that one scene. It's like a third of the way through the episode. Um, Picard, and there's just a, there's an inherent awkwardness and discomfort. There's no chemistry between the actors. There's no weight behind it. It just feels like like you're you're just kind of shuffling uncomfortably in your chair because you're watching a high school high school production and one of the kids keeps forgetting his lines. Like I, I I know that sounds incredibly insulting, but that's how I mean it. It was a bad scene. Nobody was forgetting their lines, obviously, but you get the point. By contrast, this scene here in this episode has so much more weight behind it. Now the two actors still don't have a particularly large amount of chemistry. In fact, I would say they have none. But both are still acting appropriately. Patrick Stewart still managed to add significant gravitas to his reaction. She flat out says, I'm transferring over. And he just... He gets this expression on his face. He doesn't have to ask. He knows why this is coming from. I have a seat, Lieutenant. You know, he, he, he gets this. She felt it necessary to tell you that, did she? Uh, no, I felt it necessary. It's a much stronger scene. And I think a lot of that is on the weight of the writing. Because it was written to be Tasha Yar basically pouring her guts out to Captain Picard. Which is funny, because the previous scene I just mentioned in Hiding Q was also Tashiar being, well, Troy, being written to pour her guts out to Picard. Just pointing out the, the, the gulf in quality. I myself actually like season one of TNG. I know I'm a weirdo, but it's true. But I would never deny that season three is not much better. Anyways. So then they have a battle. Let's talk about this for a second. First of all, three Cavort-class Bird of Prey show up, and I want to talk about that just really quickly. Now, for those of you not aware, Star Trek does not like to do continuity when it comes to little details like ships and technology and all that stuff, setting stuff, as I mentioned earlier. So the term Bird of Prey is used very vaguely across basically all of Star Trek. I believe the first introduction of the word Bird of Prey was actually all the way back in Balance of Terror, back in TOS, although I could be wrong about that. But the point is, they just kind of like to use the word, basically mean a large fighter. It's a specific type of ship. You know, it's, it's a classification of ship. And over the years, it's kind of entered its own lingo. In fact, to try and kind of smooth over some of the edges in continuity, one of the things later Star Trek started doing, both TNG and DS9 did this, uh, was try to posit that there are multiple different classes of birds of prey amongst the Klingons. And this allows for, you know, a bird of prey like the old Varel, which was a piece of crap, basically, versus the newer Cavorts, like in this episode, which are far stronger and capable of taking on something like, you know, Dideridexes or Galaxies. But I bring that up because the biggest problem here is they keep using the same model. 
One of the things I like about Star Trek Online is that the Bird of Prey, or to be more accurate, the Raider type of ship, is actually has actually multiple different types of ship. Now, they're all the same basic thing. they got the wing, then the wing goes down. You know, They're all that kind of a thing, but they at least look different. They're different models. And it's not like they don't do kit bashing on Star Trek, even back in the 90s and in the late 80s. So they could have done this, but no, they all look like just the exact same ship, and it drives me crazy <laughs> as, as a setting builder and as a discusser of, of fiction because it's like, okay... You know, I, I, three birds of prey can take on a galaxy class. Now, I know a lot of people uh, say that I'm a big fanboy of a galaxy class, which is not actually true. Uh, the galaxy is certainly a nice enough ship, but it's not it's not even on my top ten list for Star Trek alone. But I bring this up because the way the galaxy class cruiser has always been presented, uh, with two exceptions, is that it's a big, strong ship. And this is the military timeline, remember. So you'd think it would be an even bigger, stronger ship. Yar even drops a note about the kind of a power that they're putting into the weapons and shields far more so than they otherwise would. This is something I myself have actually already discussed when it came to discussing the Defiant over on Deep Space Nine. Um, so that makes sense, that they would turn this kind of doom ship into a much more doom ship. And yet these three birds of prey beat it. Now, I know that there was some tactics involved because the, the galaxy was basically putting itself at a tactical disadvantage against three ships that were outmaneuvering it, so I get that. But it's still just a little bit, huh? Here's my final note. I'm not just saying this to complain, because I actually had a thought, and this is pure headcanon. One of the ideas that I've always kind of liked, and it's becoming more strong as I've been going back through these shows, is the idea that the bird of prey externally is basically the same, but that it's heavily modular internally. In other words, that you can more or less shift around pieces, bridge, equipment, layout, weapons, power core, you know, cloaking device, all that stuff internally um, in a very easy manner. Now, I, I, there's actually a, uh, like, like a Honda Civic in real life, right? Um, I think that's a good example because, you know, it's one of those cars, and there's better examples of that, but I can't think of it, but it's one of those cars that's basically designed to be modular, to be able to just pull in part and change things around at will, right? You know, there's ships that are like that in fiction, there's stuff like that in real life, so that makes sense that the bird would be like that, and that kind of helps to smooth over some of the problems. I mean, even ignoring everything else, the bridge alone of a bird of prey changes so many times. I think we're up to like eight different bridges for the bird of prey across fiction, but anyways... Point being, these three cavorts go after it, beat the ever-living crap out of the galaxy. Um, this battle is kind of boring. It's always been one of the weakest parts of the episode for me, even when I saw this right way back in the day. And it's just a byproduct of the fact that, frankly, Star Trek doesn't really know how to do space combat to make it actually interesting. Or at least it didn't used to. Deep Space Nine and late TNG are when they finally managed to actually know how to do space combat. Although, frankly, I put more of that on DS9 than anything else. Um, not just with the Dominion War, but even in The Emissary, they showed more of the battle at Wolf 359 and managed to make it actually look interesting. Whereas in Best of Both Worlds, we only see the aftermath of it. So, I have a feeling that if they were to you know, do a proper remake of TNG, scenes like this one with this battle would be a lot more interesting and be a lot more dynamic rather than You know, complaint over. Why does it take so damn long for the for the Enterprise C to enter the rift? I know they can't do it at faster than impulse, and I know they're a damaged ship, but Jesus Christ, <laughs> it takes forever to get over there. Now I have a couple more thoughts here before we really talk. Uh, quick, 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 quick before we get into the big stuff. First of all, um, the the Klingon strategy in this fight makes sense to me if you presume what the Klingons are thinking. What I mean by that is, they seem to be very heavily focused on the Enterprise C, and trying to specifically draw the D away from the C. And that may sound weird, but remember, the Klingons basically don't really know what's going on here. They may or may not recognize that that's a ship out of time. In fact, I would argue they probably don't recognize it. In fact, what they probably recognize is this is typical Federation trickery. And the Federation are trying some kind of experiment, or some kind of super weapon. They're trying to pull some kind of technobabble out their bum, and therefore, the Klingon's focus is on the sea. That actually makes a degree of sense. I also wanted to mention, <laughs> there's a part where uh, the Klingons say, you should surrender. Apparently it was actually supposed to be Michael Doran's voice, but it's not. Anyways, you should surrender. And then within less than a second after that, they start firing again, and they shoot them two more times, after uh, calling for surrender. 
Speaking of which, the Enterprise's shields go down. Just for the hell of it, I decided to write down how many times they keep firing on the Enterprise. I mention this because this actually works for me. It shows the level of savagery here, because if we were to pull this into a more personal perspective, what's ha I want you to picture Picard. He's on the ground, he's bloodied, bruised, and he can't get up. He is that far damaged. And two Klingons are standing around him, kicking him. No, actually worse than that. They've got their batlas, and they're just slicing into him. Over, and over, and over. Now, obviously, that's a very ugly kind of a picture. It's very gruesome, if you think about it, especially if you were to show it. But that's what they're doing. They shoot him, and I counted, 18 more times. They shoot the Enterprise 8D 18 more times after the shields go down. That ship is gone. They have won. But they just keep brutalizing and beating it down because, well, that's just kind of the, you know, the, the further implication of just how dark and horrible that this military setting has become. We basically see that the, the Klingon Empire in this timeline has become militant fanatics willing to enter, entertain these kind of uh, strategies, right? Or, if you're willing to be even darker, we could see that the Klingons have gotten to the point where the only possible outcome for them is total domination and or extermination of the Federation because the war has been going against the Federation and we can presume that the Federation has been resorting to very morally wrong strategies in order to try and pull, push back against the Klingons. In other words, doing underhanded, dirty tricks and generally make it so the Klingons have to be as brutal and unforgiving and merciless as possible. Uh, surrender. Fire, fire, fire. Because they know from experience that the Federations, if allowed a chance to surrender, will cause problems for them. Right? Let me use a real-life parallel. In World War II... I don't want to get into specifics. It was a thing that you will, you know, if once you took out the other ship, you then offered for the people from that ship to get on your ship. You know, the, the survivors, the people who evacuated. They were prisoners of war, but, you know, you're done, right? Okay, you've lost your ship, you've lost the battle. Come on, let's go. Sort of a pseudo-gentleman's agreement. Now, how often that was followed and not is not only a matter of debate, but also something that varied significantly. However, there are certain moments in which several ships, notably British ships, could not actually offer those terms of moral acceptability, for lack of a better way to put it, to German ships because it was a regular policy of, of Nazi U-boats to be in the area around sinking ships, and they would cause problems for the British ships, basically killing everyone on board. So they couldn't offer mercy because their enemy was so uh, horrible, for lack of a better way to put it, that they couldn't afford to. And now you can see how it can be even darker than I was already positing. Final thoughts. There's a line earlier that Picard says to Garrett. It's a great line. He says, One more ship will make no difference in the here and now. And he is absolutely wrong. Because one ship made all the difference in this matter. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, yeah, the Enterprise-C went back. The Enterprise-D is the ship that made the difference here and now. The significance of the sacrifice of the D is not lost because of the fact that they did this working and fighting and doing everything they could in order to lay down their lives so that one ship could alter the course of the war. If you'll forgive me the quote. Attention all hands. As you know, we could outrun the Klingon vessels. But we must protect the Enterprise C until she enters the temporal rift, and we must succeed. Let us make sure that history never forgets the name Enterprise. That is one of the most significant quotes, arguably, in Star Trek history. Because Star Trek is something that, even to this very day, even after all the stuff that's happened in Star Trek effectively dying and then being brought back and people disagreeing on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, despite all of that, Star Trek is a common name. I could mention Star Trek, Spock, Picard, Kirk, the Enterprise, and there is an extremely high percentage chance, at least here in the States, I'm not sure about other countries, but at least here in the States there's a huge chance that people will know what I'm talking about. Kind of like Darth Vader. Even people who haven't seen Star Wars know who Darth Vader is because it's entered popular culture. History has never forgotten the name Enterprise. And the significance of that is that this is about when that happened. 
by what is effectively total coincidence. Yesterday's Enterprise prophetically stated how important the Enterprise would be when it was becoming important. Now, the specifics of when TNG entered popular culture is something that has been debated many times. I have access to, for example, the actual Nielsen ratings for Star Trek back in the day, and I can tell you definitively that from between when this episode came out and Best of Both Worlds was when their numbers really shot up, and immediately following Best of Both Worlds is basically the peak for Nielsen ratings for Star Trek ever across history. But I also noticed that this is when popular media started paying attention more to Star Trek. More people started being aware of it. More people started being cognizant of it. And TNG, like it or not, became more widespread of a phenomenon than TOS did. Now, that is also a byproduct of the times, the technology available and the distribution of information that was available in the 80s and 90s as opposed to back in the 60s and 70s. But the fact remains, this one ship this one episode really did mean that we will never forget the name Enterprise. And I'd love to end on that note, but i got to bring up one more thing, and that's the Borg. See, this was completely unintentional, but this episode is an effective one-two punch for the best of both worlds. Because this episode shows a potential dark and horrible future where there is no hope, there is no salvation, and one ship deciding, at, at a near cost of its own existence, to lay down its life in order to try and alter that future. Now the thing is, the big there's a lot of big differences, even narratively, in terms of constructive and theme, between these two episodes, but you can see how there's some echoes there. And the worst part is, this was a time travel episode, and everyone know, who knows anything knows that in Star Trek, time travel basically doesn't matter. There's very few times where time travel has any lasting effects in Star Trek. Um, I could probably name on one hand the episodes that do. But here, here in this episode, we had that out. It's okay. It didn't matter. Yeah, Riker died, but so what? Originally, by the way, it was supposed to be Data died, and Wesley died, and it was going to be really gruesome and horrible. Uh, that's also Ronald D. Moore's fingerprints right there. Instead, all we see is Riker and the huge gash on his neck. But anyways, more people are going to die. It's okay, though. Different timeline. Boom, we're back. We fixed time. We don't have that out with the Borg. I hope you've enjoyed, guys. I'll see you guys next time.